Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. It's been a little bit. It's been a minute. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm recuperating from Sundance. Um, since we last recorded a podcast, it's been about three weeks. You've relocated from Queen Anne to Shoreline. I've put myself through Sundance Film Festival and watched 45 feature films. Which one of us made the more harrowing journey? I'll, I'll let the listener decide. Time will tell. We are in two very different recovery modes. I was thinking of you when I saw someone on Twitter say that they had this tradition after Sundance of watching something just like totally mindless and stupid afterwards to try and recover. And then I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if I put Taylor in a tough position by asking him to do silent films the week after Sundance. You did. It was very hard. I I started in the wrong order. But... You know, I watched a film called Uncorked on Netflix. Mm. Uh, It's this great sophomore effort uh, from a director that I forget the name of. The last movie he made was 20 years ago. Um, Mm. And it was just the right amount of mindlessness um, with, like, sincerity. It it was absolute popcorn Mm. film, macaroni and cheese, all that stuff. But it was well acted, thoughtful. Um, And then in the middle of Sundance, I watched another film on Netflix that was terrible, but I needed it, mm-hmm. called Friendsgiving, starring Malin Ackerman. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and uh, it's it's got, like, all these great gaggle of side characters, and it's very fun and stupid, and it's also bad, but it was exactly what I needed. Um, Uncorked sounds like it's about wine. It is. It's about a, um, like, a, a man who is, you know, living at home with his parents still, and... His family owns a barbecue restaurant that mm-hmm. the grandfather owned. And now the dad, um, who is played by Courtney B. Vance, mm. is trying to force his son to be the the carry-on, right? And the son doesn't want to. He wants to be a sommelier. Mm. And, you know, I'll spoil it. The film ends and he's still pursuing his dream rather than having mm. achieved it. And it was that little... You know, that, that made it nice along the way. As you describe it, it sounds familiar. I think I might have seen a trailer at some point. Yep, it, it's probably popping up on there. If anybody has Netflix and wants to uh, watch all these uh, pretentious films and then have a have a nice macaroni and cheese uh, bowl of, of casual, this is a good one. Free endorsement before we really get going. Yep. Um, so we are starting with our rescreening title. Is that correct? Yes, we are. Today, we're going to dig into Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, I did the wrong one. I watched America. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. This is going to get interesting. <laughs> um, so, I mean, firstly, what was your Sergio history predating this? This is the first and only Sergio Leone movie that I have seen. What about you? This is the second Sergio Leone film that I watched in entirety uh i don't really remember it but i know that i watched all of a fistful of dollars before Mm. this when i was younger and i did some homework and watched once upon a time in america and Mm. as i was watching that i realized that i'd seen it at some point in brief snippets um Mm. growing up i imagine that either my grandfather had it and I just never managed to make it through when I was like seven. You're like too long. Or I, or I thought it was boring more Mm. likely, or I had watched it um, briefly perhaps on like television, um, but Mm. never finished the four hour chunk that it would be because it is a four hour. The one I watched was four hours. Um, So yeah, that's our background. I did a little bit of homework and rewatched a fistful of dollars as well. Didn't really care for it. Um, Didn't vibe with it. It's fine, but um, nothing's quite as stupendous as Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, before we continue, though, why don't we do a first impression of our next rescreening title, Jacques Demy's Donkey Skin. A little bit of a different flavor. Préparez votre, préparez votre pâte dans une jatte, 
Michael, that was Un Film de Jacques Demy, Donkey Skin. I'm going to, before I ask you, just inform the listeners. Um, so we hit play on the trailer, and I actually saw a mirror. And you and I both turned into Marie Kondo inside of a clean room, because the amount of joy that was just sparked is tremendous. A lot of joy in this room now. What do you think about uh, this opportunity to watch a Jacques Demy film? Well, we have... It just so happens that we've done a a fair amount of heavier fare for our previous rescreening episodes, with some exceptions. Aaron Brockovich is a little bit on the lighter side, but we certainly yeah, haven't like done only a group of people were dying. Yeah, exactly. I I wouldn't say that we've done anything so far that I would describe as whimsical in 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 any way. Uh, so we owe it to ourselves to do something a little lighter. We haven't even done anything romantic. Right? No. Side effects involves murder of the husband, and Gone no. Girl gets pretty close. It's true. It's true. We also don't even like talk about costumes all that much. I think we'll be talking about costumes quite a bit in this one. Um, a musical fairy tale, like that is a good change of pace for us. I'm excited. I am thrilled. You said musical fairy tale. I was thinking magical fairy tale. It is musical. It's whimsical. I bought the box set of Jacques Demy so that I could... Uh, really get in there um also it was the only way that the blu-ray was sold and i've been collecting mm. all of our rescreening titles on blu-ray so that i have a library that reflects what we've done the most watching on it's nice to have those entries in your personal bank um i i'm thrilled i love Catherine deneuve i'd love to see her play a younger whimsical role i'm very much more familiar with her late work it's a lot more um you know fastidious and murderous Mm. Um, so this is a wonderful change of pace, like you mentioned in all those ways. Um, rather than stay happy, though, let's stay, I, I guess, happy, but get murderous with uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. The railroad. The boom towns. A new life and the promised land. Once upon a time. Mommy! The widow, the land grabber, the outlaw, Gunman. The man in search of a name. All right, this is a long movie, one of the longer ones we've done for a rescreening, I think. Mm-hmm. This is just under three hours. Depending on your watch, mine was over. Oh, was it? Okay, okay. Um, I know we both usually try to get a at least a Similar second print. or third watch of these in when we can i kind of did one and a half because my second viewing was kind of a uh, skimming if you will sounds like you had a similar kind of experience yeah so the first time i tried to watch this was on a really really long day where i'd, I'd stayed late at work and it was just like the wrong thing i turned it on for an hour and i probably looked at my phone for 40 of those minutes oh wow okay um, i just was not ready for it so mm. I, I rewatched it that Sunday. So I waited 24 mm. hours, then went in. I was all thrilled because I'd read up on it and I was like ready to see what I was going to see. And I, I was in. I loved the full ride. The problem is you can't really watch it on a weekday if if you're working. You just it's really hard to find the stamina, the want to, the mental energy, the the way to thoughtfully engage with what's happening in every single scene. Because not only is there a story being told, there's a story um, being told that is highly referential. Um, and I think that we will barely touch on the surface of those references. Um, famously, Kurosawa said uh, something to the effect of uh, he liked Leone's film, but he uh, was familiar with it because it's the same film that he made. Um, 
upon listening to just a small portion of the commentary, I've become familiar with the fact that there's nothing this film doesn't reference. And mm. Kurosawa was a l- little bit, um, you know, jaded, I think, um, perhaps at Leone's mm. success in the West mm. um, or like, you know, Western culture compared to him. Um, I, I think that that was maybe a little bit more ego of a, of a statement than a truthful statement because um, there's references abound from Johnny Guitar to Shane to Searchers, High Noon, mm. uh, John Ford homages constantly. The log house that the McBain Lodge is built from is from the same um, logs that Orson Welles left behind from his rendition of Falstaff. Mm. Um, there's just so much to know. Um, and yeah, I love it, but it is a burden to put on someone to watch. Yeah, I watched it on a Sunday morning with coffee, which was a good way to do it. Same. I, did you? Yeah, there you go. Coffee. More. I mean, morning I slept in. <laughs> there you morning. go. Did you do this in bed? I didn't. Right here. Okay, you're, you're on the couch. Right where I was. <laughs> Just checking. I, I I watched it on uh, Blu-ray through the Xbox. There you go. On the 4K okay. TV restored version. You did the Amazon Prime version. Was that restored or? Uh, I did the Criterion edition. Criterion. Um, okay. Yeah, and then skimmed it uh, on Prime, and I think they were the same. I didn't notice any uh, differences off the top of my head, so I think the Prime one is just as good as the one that just recently left Criterion. Well, there is a minute difference, if I recall, between the theatrical Mm. version and the restored version, sir. Uh, Do you know what it is? Is Uh, it significant? Yeah, they're they're small um, glances, I believe, at the beginning of the film. At the train station, and then at the end, they're they're really small, but they they do inform the character. Um, mm. This far outside of it, though, I forget exactly all the things that I was clued into by those. Mm. But I, when I did the research and watched it, I I understood how adding those back in did have an immediate payoff to the story. really. Yeah, this is one where I was going to say like a minute on a two hour and fifty five minute movie, I could take it or leave it. But you think well, it's, it's significant? It's those glances that are so important before any dialogue begins in the first 10 minutes of the film um so yeah absolutely i I think that anytime there's no conversation and everything's informed by body language or like the look of someone um because that's a stand-in for dialogue that's Mm. like when we were watching margaret and i'd watched the theatrical version where you don't realize that there was a whole other half to the conversation with the teenage boy that she liked on the phone Mm. until you watch the full version because it's just one minute how much more could change mm. the entire character changed in that one moment yeah. um not quite the entire character here but it just informed the uh the violence and the pacing of what was going on i see i see uh yeah it's an interesting movie to me because it feels to me like the plot doesn't even kick in substantially until like two-thirds of the way into the movie i completely agree and then i watched the commentary and I felt like the stupidest person on earth. Oh, why is that? Because the beginning of the film, there's all these men laying around doing nothing, right? Uh, you mean in like the very first scene of the uh-huh. movie? Yeah. yeah. You were supposed to infer that these are railroad laborers mm. expanding the railroad in a foreshadow to mm. the plot of the McBain farm in the film. All of that was mm. was purposeful and thought out, and I had zero intellect to thinking that at all. Yeah, I guess I, I remember the station like already being built in that opening scene. Like, so the there station a guy was with, built, but yeah. the the railroad um, that they're expanding—that is the railroad they're expanding—and that railroad mm. is supposed to go into the McBain farm, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. And they're the railroad laborers that are doing that deviation of the track. Yeah, yeah. I see, I see. Um, yeah, and I feel like you're kind of uh, getting introduced to characters independently of each other for a long time before you even realize what the what each of their motivations have to do with each other's. Um, mm-hmm. I like that. Like for so much of the movie, you're kind of just absorbed with the form because you don't even really understand how this all fits together yet. I really kind and of enjoy that. The form is so gorgeous. That also. Oh helps. yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it is an Italian Western, but I think it has everything you would associate with an American Western, probably just because of everything it's borrowing from. But it has, uh, you know, world building wise, everything you would kind of want and expect from just the 
the landscapes of Monument Valley, um, the towns, the clothes. It's, you know, if you want to be in this world, this is about as good as you can get, I think, movie-wise. Um, for me, I don't know that I see this imminently becoming a personal favorite, just because at the end of the day, there are maybe other worlds that I'm just more drawn to than the Wild Wild West. But I think this is a pretty um, well-realized world for a Western. Yeah, I, I mean, classically, this is my favorite version of the Wild Wild West. Mm. Um, because it's just never looked so interesting. I feel like I'm watching a motion graphic novel. Like, just the, the close-ups, the, the specter-like uh, placement of Bronson in frame. He's always behind, like, a pillar or he's being exposed by the train. Um, his character, I believe I heard reference to as just being called harmonica, um, you know, and, and that's how he's introduced. He, you hear him before you see him. And that was Leone directly copying Johnny guitar. That's oh, yeah. he wanted the harmonica to be the, the guitar from Johnny guitar. He wanted to introduce the character before you see the character. Um, and I, I just find so much of that, not only clever storytelling, but like worthwhile riffing. Like it, it's not empty riffing where you're just trying to play homage to something. He's trying to say like, I love all this so much and here's my version of it, which mm. just so clearly now on this side of, of, you know, Tarantino's filmography, I just see the bleed through so plain. Mm. Um, and the giallos that we've watched, they're just totally different to me on the other side of this film. I, I appreciate mm. so much more that they're referencing, particularly the one that I was very mixed on that we watched, um, where we watched Support the Girls. I forget the name of that that theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. But we watched uh, Something Under the Sun. Uh, Let the Corpses Tan. Yes. And uh, that was just a wooden structure with this brutal shootout and, like, mm -hmm. the crunchy leather and the close-ups and... Um, understanding its influence has deepened my appreciation for it. I still don't think that I'd love it or like it really, but mm. I, I appreciate it at a totally oh, yeah. different level. And the appreciation that this has brought me to all of cinema outside of it is just monumental. Yeah. That one's cool because it seems like that's really merging to Italian genres, right? Giallo and the Italian Western. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's this weird kind of formal amalgamation of things that I, I thought was really fascinating. Um, and yeah, certainly um, fun to think back on after actually having seen uh, this one. Um, Ennio Morricone, I mean, geez, what a composer, right? If you can't stuff. beat him, join him is what Tarantino thought. And he just stole him and had him compose for him. A lot of good stuff. And it's nice. I think, you know, everyone has their kind of unique tune, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. there's the harmonica, obviously, for uh, uh, Bronson. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's just called harmonica. Yeah. Um, but uh, Claudia Cardinale has her own score that's a little bit more tragic. Um, there's the heavy guitar when you get into, you know, the, the escalating tension of a shootout. I think there's a really kind of nice variety while it all still feels very cohesive, too. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I hate to just directly copy commentary again, but um, two things I was astounded by, just building mm. off of what you're saying. The the fellow I was listening to described Cardinale as the main character of the film. Mm. Interesting. Which, on reflection is absolutely true. The entire film is about mm. her, essentially. Uh, the second of which is Ennio Morricone had gone to some pretentious avant-garde uh, operatic uh, music hall thing and listened to the sound of a ladder being slid in and out for 20 minutes. Mm. And what he took away from that was that anything can be music depending on how it's played. Mm. And that's what informed that first um, scene where everything is silent, and mm. but it's not silent. And you're hearing the sound of the windmill and the sound of the telegraph and the sound of all that stuff. And that's, oh, yeah. that's how he built out that sound design. They originally had a piece of music there, but Leone thought it didn't work. And then he uh, remembered that experience he had with the ladder and did that mm. whole music composition after the film had already been shot um, mm. to try to seem with what Leone was envisioning. And mm. I just think that that's one of those amazing alchemical accidents. Like, mm. it just worked out in a way that defines film history. 
Yeah, for me, sometimes the sound is most striking um, when it suddenly goes away. You know, we first hear the creak of the windmill and along with everything else, the fly, uh, the spits and, and that kind of thing. And then as the little confrontation in the first scene unfolds, it's quiet. We hear the harmonica and that kind of thing. And then the creek comes back in. It's just kind of that idea that I think Claudia Cardinale's character says at one point that, like, you know, you can do whatever you want to me. Something awful will happen, but everything will just go back to the way it was. I'll be fine. The idea that this stuff happens in the uncivilized West and afterwards, everything is just as it was. Everybody resumes their business. The sounds continue. Um, And same thing when McBain's farm is attacked. You know, you hear the crickets and then the crickets stop. In the cicada. Yeah, um, yeah. It's you don't notice it sometimes until it stops. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, you don't. Yeah, I mean, you notice it, and then it stops, and then when it comes back, you know what the sound was that you missed. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I mean, particularly that scene at the McBain farm, right? It's the gunshot, and then you see the birds go up, which I believe was a direct homage to the Searchers, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm. Um, and then in the Searchers, I think that. Uh, a bird falls because they were shooting the bird. But mm. here it's a reversal and instead they shoot um the daughter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, at the the scenes that actually take place at the farm, the McBain farm, some of the early ones, actually the, it's what you're talking about right before the shooting even occurs. Just some of the world building there, like I was so struck by just the tables well, everything yes. that was on the tables, like they're preparing a meal. There's like that big bowl of corn and there's a bunch of meat on there. Like it just feels so real and textured. I loved all that stuff. The, uh, once again, just directly ripping off that commentary, the, so I'd mentioned that Falstaff's, uh, the Orson Welles film Falstaff, um, I think maybe it's called the Chimes of Midnight now, um, is the lodge that they adapted and they, you know, they took all the standing timber from that and they kind of remade what they wanted for the McBain farm. And because those are solid whole logs Mm -hmm. and because that's like a house that doesn't just tear down, it looks real. It looks permanent and it it brings out the table. It brings out the corn. It it makes the deaths feel like real deaths. Um, And it brings a lot more legitimacy to the well that looks very paltry by itself. Mm -hmm. But when the well is framed with the McBain homestead behind it, it looks totally different than when it's alone. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There, are, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I think is very just convincing production design and kind of uh, it's not location because obviously they built this stuff. But there's um, that shot after Claudia Cardinale's character first arrives and gets off the train, and you see her, you know, go into the the train station, and we're not hearing the conversation that she's having within like a station agent or mm-hmm. whatever, and then the uh camera takes this crane shot up above and shows us the town um great shot you know some of those big master shots that really um show us the lay of the land uh are really convincing because like you can see the backs of the buildings like they're not just you know the facades that have Mm -hmm. been stood up in other kind of cheaper westerns i guess they feel like really uh living breathing places and what really builds that is Right. So the, the train comes in, you see the steam or the smoke of the train. Then there's hordes of people, like oh, real yeah, yeah. hordes of real people. Um, like it just looks and feels like real people. And she gets out and she's just one ant among many. She's not special. Mm-hmm. And then the train, I think, begins pulling out and all the crowds start diverting. And you can't hear her and no one's there to greet her. We know why. Mm-hmm. And so her fretful look takes on this extra tone. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's just that that little bit of extra is in every single scene. And that's why I love it. It's just such masterful storytelling. Um, I don't think on air we've referenced that this was written by not only Sergio Leone story-wise, but Dario Argento and Bernardo Bertolucci. I mean, could you name three more iconic filmmakers from the 70s to collaborate on a screenplay? Yeah, it's interesting. It does feel a little bit more like a like a footnote to me than one that's like super narratively relevant. Like I don't know that I would be able to identify anything about it that feels like Argento really? to me. Um 
I haven't seen very many Bertolucci's. I've seen two, I think. But I think of those as like dramatically different kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I love it as a fun fact. I don't know that I really feel the influence of them in the writing. Um, but uh, that, that might just, especially with Bertolucci, that might just be that I haven't seen enough of his work. Um, so I, I, you, you might be right in how to interpret that. But for me, it's because I watched Once Upon a Time in America. Mm. And because there are so many flaws to that beautiful film, Mm. I can see how master storytellers could help a master storyteller make legit characters. Because Mm. the thing about Cardinale is you never don't believe her. And Mm. her arc is so passively told, but so Mm. truthful. McBain feels truthful um the i I think whenever i see a woman thrown into immediate uh horrible distress um and dario argento is tied to it i think that he may have had a hand and so for me Mm -hmm. i I think that you know he could have helped build out that framing of of the tragedy and i'm sure bertolucci was more involved with who she was originally and what her original profession was perhaps Mm -hmm. uh back in louisiana but um and then the the smokiness, um, you know, I, I associate that with more Leone and, and Bertolucci, but the the Argento stuff in my head, I might be totally off. I, I see is more of the the tragedy and the surprise horror in some mm. of the shootouts and, and those stylings. I don't think that he told or had a real hand in what, what occurred necessarily, but I think that those beats are, are very much of the beats of Argento. When I think of the bird with the crystal plumage and some of those timings. Mm. And the, uh, you know, the irony of the bird with the crystal plumage where you're watching the suffering from the, the side of glass where you can't make a sound mm. and, um, you know, you're just stuck to witness. There's just some some uh, synonyms, I guess, to yeah. those stories. Yeah, yeah, that might, it might, may, might be something I just have to have to chew on more. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Johnny Guitar. I thought a lot about Johnny Guitar and just kind of uh comparing and contrasting in my mind Claudia Cardinale with Joan Crawford's character mm-hmm. in that movie um and just kind of the similarity in their uh toughness um and kind of resilience but they're they're also so different I think that it's, it was just kind of I like setting those characters side by side in my head because Claudia Cardinale is so feminine mm-hmm. um or as Joan Crawford's obviously much more masculine in her costuming mm-hmm. in her posture um and yet they seem yeah and they seem to but they seem to be a kind of a, a similar spirit especially within their their very manly man's worlds um i don't know i kind of like uh mulling that over in my head for sure because there's really very little female like heroines in the western genre right so mm-hmm. jones kind of who i went to like there, there's no one else that i can really think of um at that point in time that you can reference on on this side there there's a little bit more but um yeah her arc and the interactions she has with people who aren't villains really inform her as a character i i um particularly think of that moment at the tavern um where um, she has just arrived into town and there's not the shootout or the fight yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's getting grilled by the bartender about where she's from. And then Mm. she just keeps talking on and on about Louisiana and she doesn't want to hear it. And it's very much because we just watched the silent films that we'll talk about in a little bit on a different episode. Um, She's really doing something with her face to just clue the viewer in, in a way that builds with uh, I don't, the the score at that point in time. I, I don't really know how to put it, but it's this this perfect symbiosis of how to feel a character's experience in the story. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll bring up one striking scene that I don't even know that I've really made up my mind about yet, which is when she is with Frank and it's kind of the romance slash rape sex scene between the two of them, which is quite strikingly shot. You know, it your first uh, kind of horizontal and then the camera like turns, you know, as it pulls mm-hmm. back. Um, I don't know. I, I'll just throw it out there in case you have thoughts. I, I, I'm still personally chewing on the scene 
in terms of um, how she is responding to it in that in that moment. Um, so we've also talked on rescreening about a uh, different film that I'm going to reference here. That film being A History of Violence. Mm-hmm. And there's a very complex scene on the stairwell in that film um, in which it seems like a forcible sexual encounter occurs. And then there's a crucial moment where she pulls him back in um, visually. And I, I don't know, but it reminded me of that. That that's Mm. my noises that I'll make with my mouth. It reminded me of that, that human, that very human thing in which um, sexuality is not unfortunately cut and dry in all sex, sexual situations. And I think that's what, um, you know, Leone was going for because I've seen America as well. Um, there's very complex sex situations that I would say, you know, to the first viewer appear as rape. And then when they're, it, this is in Once Upon a Time in America. And then later on in the story, when that character comes back and she's making jokes about it and slaps him on the ass, um, and you know, those types of things, you totally reframe what you just saw. And so I, I think that he's going for something deeper about the human experience and sexuality. I just don't know that I can assert anything other than I think that's what he wants is for us to grapple with it rather than know. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And, uh, it, you know, it's interesting just in contrast to how she responds to Bronson's coming on to her in one scene where she very, very violently um, rejects his advances mm-hmm. there. It's just polar opposite. And then if anything, she she knows he's uh, I guess she doesn't quite know at that point yet that she he is more likely to protect her than Frank, I suppose. Um, but yeah, striking scene. Uh, one that I'm definitely still chewing on. Um, Incredibly shot scene. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. performed scene. Incredible depth. I mean, the setting makes the film, right? Um, I guess we should talk about where it's set a little bit. This mm-hmm. is called a spaghetti western. It's maybe one of the most famous spaghetti westerns that doesn't have Clint Eastwood in it. And yet it was actually shot entirely in Spain. Mm. Um, the, the first scene, I believe, happens in northern Spain uh, with the train tracks and mm-hmm. uh, the train station. And then um, the McBain farm family situation, I believe, is all in southern Spain. Um, mm. so we're, we're moving around in Spain, but we're always in Spain. So even though it's called a spaghetti Western directed by an Italian filmmaker, um, you know, there's a lot of American performers. There's a lot of European performers and it's shot in Spain. I almost find that hard to believe. Like the shots of her Claudia first arriving and driving to uh, the McBain's farm. Like, I just have to believe that's not Spain. Like, isn't that like 100% Monument Valley, like Utah? You're seeing the buttes, you know, the towering sandstone buttes. Like, I would, I would bet good money that's not Italy. That's what I'm saying. It's not Italy. It's. Spain. Oh, they said it was. Or sorry, sorry, not Spain. Um, um, I, 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 I'm I mean, not familiar I, with I Spain. I can only go off of uh, what I heard, but in the commentary, they explained that um, all of those areas are in Spain. Um, I don't think I I heard commentary on Monument Valley, but uh. I. I mean, they, they could have exterior shots that mm. they interlaced. I, I don't know. You know, there's all sorts of yeah. tricks that I wouldn't put past Leone to make it appear that it's in America, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they look, you know, it's like the Grand Canyon. Like, you know it when you see it. I, I That seems shocking to me that that would be in Europe. Um, but yeah, the sets, interiors, and stuff like that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And just like the general deserts. In, in the McBain farm, specifically, because mm. that's where Orson Welles shot in Spain. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the landscape's, like, uh, essential. You know, I feel like these these shots of that just capture the vastness of the landscape, um, it, you know, are important not just in terms of their kind of the awe they inspire in and of themselves, but when they're, um, you know, joined with the close-ups, I think it is the landscape itself that makes these characters feel like larger than life characters. You know, when you cut from those expanses immediately to a tight close up of a face, it makes that person feel so much bigger. Um, I feel like you cannot have that sense of these characters as being towering figures. If it were set somewhere else, so we're um, tighter and just without that vastness. Yeah. I, I mean, that is, if I had to boil down what Leone is, he's, the greatest shot reverse shot close up 
that I've ever seen because normally I get tired of it. But with him, it's like, have you seen this velvet pillow after you've looked at this vast expanse of desert? Well, let me show it to you my way. And somehow it's more luxurious and voluminous than you could ever have imagined, right? Like if, if Woody Allen or George Lucas or Spielberg or anybody else did this, I just wouldn't care. But the way he drags his camera like a paintbrush along these close-ups and gets the the light just so perfect uh, to to make you feel like you know how the object would feel to touch is the most unique thing I've ever seen. And I, I really mean that. Like, if you look at a pockmarked face when he does a close-up, you can imagine dragging your finger along those pockmarks in, in the face mm. or the leather or the the lace or the timber or the train track. Like there's, there's no close up I can think of that touches that paintbrush feel that he has. Yeah. For me, there's, there's no face that is more striking in the movie than, than Henry Fonda's partly because of those, the icy blue eyes, which is just kind of not what I even normally associate with like the, the villain of a Western. I don't know. You know, I picture dark eyes that feel like they have evil in them, but yeah, they're you're these, going like, wild, wild west, just like me. Yeah. These feel, these are like clear blue eyes and they just feel they're chilling because they just feel like they're just like, there's just ice in there. Um, I don't, I don't even know if those are his natural eye colors or what, or it's, it's striking them. Yeah, I I don't know either. Um, <laughs> Fair, <laughs> wrong guy. Um, but his his face is a different face than our normal villain. His face is the face of our usual hero, and mm. Bronson's face is our usual villain, right? And that is mm. the great juxtaposition that um, Leone's bringing up in this film. Is I'm I'm showing you someone who doesn't talk, and when they say their first line, it's essentially you know who's here to die something to that effect right Mm -hmm. um that's like the first line is delivered by bronson and it's about death um and then there's that that wonderful line where he he asks if you're here to take me to uh to where i'm going you know i i don't think you have enough uh there's there's something about horses right and then his witticism back is uh no you have two horses too many and then he Mm -hmm. kills all three of them and it's just it sets up what would normally be like a farcical Tropic Thunder type mm. dialogue, but it's so serious and it's presented in such a, a special way that um, th- this film kind of stands out of time. Like I, I understand why it's referenced so heavily and I, why Tarantino loves it so much and, and all those folks, because this is one of the movies I think most since we started the show that just embodies film history to me Mm. like it it builds on all the stuff in the past it's referencing all these other films but it's showing you what you can do with some light a town and a cast that does exactly what you tell them to do and enough lenses to do what you want to see like it's it's just so unique and of itself yeah i feel like one of the things i've always heard or read about this movie is that it's you know are kind of questions about the extent to which it is embodying the classic Western genre versus commenting on it or subtly satirize it in any way. I don't know that I've, it's probably just because I've only seen it once. I think I'm very much in the mindset of the former where I just seen it doing a hell of a good job at a classic Western. And I mm-hmm. don't know that I totally see what this movie has to say about the Western. Not, I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm just not sure I'm picking up on whatever comment about it it might have um i don't think it's doing it dope i think it's doing a really sick job of it <laughs> i so you said three things there and i don't remember what each of them were it mm. was it's doing a job as a western it's commenting on a western and then it's satire mm. well yeah I, i'm only, only i i don't know if um the conversation about it has usually had more to do with if it is satire, I don't know if that's the right word. I use comment just because I'm not sure which of those words is more applicable given Perhaps what some people see in it. But So, just projecting. I would say it's reflecting on the Western genre. Mm. And, as you said, it's doing the dopest job. Of mm-hmm. All the dopest dopes that's ever been smoked of the Western genre up to this point. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I think it's doing all of that. I think it is satirizing it because 
I, I mean, I listen to that commentary, and once you hear what it's reflecting on, that it, it's doing this, or, or it has this uh, cutoff rifle because this was in that John Wayne movie, and then he decided that he wanted handguards on all the rifles that looked really ornate because that was a beautiful homage to those John Wayne films. And then he did this because of The Searchers, and he did that because of Johnny Guitar, and he did this because Kurosawa did that, and he did this because Joan Crawford did that with her eyes. And he thought that it would look better if you did a close-up of that with her eyes rather than doing a, a mid-shot with a chandelier, where you still have the chandelier lighting, but you do a close-up and you just have the eyes. Like, all those builds are, you know, they're they're commenting, sure, they're criticizing, they're informing, they're doing all that, but they're also part of a thing that tells its own story. It, it's, it's almost like, um, this is what the West means to me. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like an affectionate view of the Western. I don't know that I can identify anything that it seems to be critiquing in it. Like, I don't know that I would say Sexuality, railroads, um, blind hope, homesteading, um, alcoholics, um, you know, outpost stations. I, I think there's a lot of criticism, but I think that it's not for the sake of criticizing. It's just a passing thought. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I sense it criticizing those things, criticizing the genre for involving those things like we do when we talk about revisionist westerns, like a, yes. like a first cow or something like that, right? That's why it's, that's why I get hung up on this idea is because it seems to be somewhere in between where it's not it's just celebrating, to, but pointing at. Pointing at is good. Yeah, that's fair. Um, uh, yeah, and po- pointing out a lot of good stuff, entertaining stuff. Um, I mean, I, I think we have to talk about the final train moments. Mm. You know, I, upon watching that, didn't think anything. Then I had a good sleep, watched uh, a, a separate Reddit meme video that was doctored up about um, the Reddit um GameStop fiasco right now, mm. right? But it it had Mission Impossible and Tropic Thunder and all that stuff. And I see Tom Cruise attached to the top of the train. I can't help but think to, what could this have been referencing? Mm. And, and then I just started thinking about what else did that finale reference just in my head? And what, what did that inform from stupid movies that I loved growing up as a little kid watching Wild Wild West with Will Smith? And since then, with films like Unstoppable and, you know, uh, the taking of Pelham 123 for for Clint Eastwood, um, making his, um, what was that, the 1517 to Paris, which I didn't like. But I I just, I I think I didn't realize that that train scene perhaps had uh, as deep of an influence as all the things that influenced the film Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, are you, you're talking about, are you talking about the like very end of the movie where we're seeing it built or like that, like the, the, the set piece where uh, the, the, the violence okay. that's yeah. happening on the train where there's someone on the top of it at one point, there's someone on the bottom People oh, yeah, are going yeah. in and out. Oh yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the movie. Cause yeah, it starts when you see, yeah. Frank noticed the shadow outside mm-hmm. and then the train starts and you're like, Oh yeah, now, now we're going, I'm mm-hmm. ready for this scene. That's it's pretty great. Right. Um, so, I guess when you watch that, did did it speak to you at a deeper level? Have you thought about that at all? Uh, did it speak to me at a deeper level? I can't say it did. I, I, I mean, I can say I was highly entertained by it. I was thrilled by it. Um, me too. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, I, 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 that is not one particular scene I thought as much about its influence, but I, I totally believe that. Honestly, I was thinking partially during that scene that the guy who kind of screws over Frank by having been followed. I think his name is Wobbles. I was partly just distracted. He look he looks a lot like Jack Black. I just kept thinking to myself, if when this is remade, that guy's gonna be played by Jack Black and it's gonna be great. Um uh, and- don't 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 hoax <laughs> hex this what do not put a pox on this film. No remakes. Fair, fair. Um uh but yeah, it's an awesome scene. I love it. Um Okay. Do, do you have a favorite character that isn't Harmonica or Cardinale? A favorite character 
other than those? Well, let's see who else we have. I mean, we have uh, Cheyenne, who is um, played by Jason Robards. Um, and what are the other options? We have Nick Bain for the short time that he <laughs> is with us. <laughs> um, I don't know that I do. This is not one where I have characters, to be honest, that I just instantly respond to um, or, or, or connect with in any way. Um that might just be kind of a thing with Westerns for me. They are such, you know, machismo heavy movies um, that I don't um, just c- connect with the people in the movies in, in, in too meaningful of a way. I'm tremendously entertained by it and I'm thrilled by the form, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I even have a fair, favorite character here. Um, but what about Interesting. you? Um, I mean, I, I have two favorite side characters that just like mm. when they're on screen, I'm enraptured by how they look on the camera. And that is the barkeep at the tavern. Um, mm. The one who tells the story about his cousin in Louisiana. And did you know her? Mm-hmm. And he just keeps talking and talking. There's something so local and personal about that performance. And he looks like such a real um, figure that I, I can imagine what it's like to sit at that bar and hear that guy just lament, you know, that he can't go to Louisiana to see it. But he, well, you know, if I did, I probably wouldn't have a good time. I wouldn't know anybody there. wouldn't know how to get around. They wouldn't have time to... And he just keeps talking and talking. And then the other one is the guy that says nothing in the beginning mm. of the film. The older gentleman with the uh, the tickets for the train station. Mm-hmm. I can't lose his face. I'll never mm. forget his face. And it's such a distinct uh, face with those, those high pronounced sunk cheeks and and the high pronounced cheekbone um the shadow cast by that and his frailty and being thrown in that closet and uh the the look on his face when the tickets get you know torn up and thrown out of it i just i'm um enraptured by those moments yeah he's like so nervous he could barely get the words out i I think I started without subtitles. He started talking and I was like, I think I'm going to need subtitles for this movie. And then I realized, no, this dude is just so scared. He can barely do anything more than mumble a few words. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty uh, uh, convincing in his terror, that is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's oozes of things that I, I love oodles and I would ooze about the oodles of things that I love about this um, I think I saw you gave it what I would say is a low score I, I saw a 4 is that correct? It is a 4 I mean I think it's an, an incredible movie personal favorite just not like I just know that you know there are plenty of movies out there that just move me speak to you more than this one does yeah engage uh, yeah I, I think it's spectacular it is this movie very much about the spectacle for me um um i don't know I, I i don't know that i've seen too many classic westerns that speak to me in quite that way if anything i'm more moved by revisionist westerns that kind of seem to acknowledge um the flaws of the not the flaws but the the more problematic aspects of the genre i guess um yeah so I, I I enjoy it, but it's it's you know I, I saved the fives for the ones that I know I'm gonna love long term. <laughs> what about Interesting. you? Yeah. Um, no, I I love this long term. I mean, it's it's a visual painting that moves. Um, I don't know that I would always be in the mood to watch this painting or always have the attention span for it, but I I can't think of another thing that does this thing. Um, and sometimes that's like what art is, you know, is I really like the way that I feel when I look at this thing. And I really like the way that I feel when I look at this thing. I think a lot of different stuff. I think about actually having to be a gunslinger at that time. I think about how cool the styling is of it. Um, I think about the McBain instant tragedy. Just like how brutal that frontier could be. Um, I, I like the villainy that Henry Fonda has. I love the, you know... Th- the protected train car that moves being in control Mm. of everything. Um, These are philosophical ideas. I like um, the performances I love and that, like I said, the scraping drag of a artist's paintbrush with the camera. Um, I, I, I just love this permanently. Um, And when it gets into like a number, 
it's nothing less than what I would envision a hundred, a five out of five to be. That doesn't mean it's empirically correct or any of that stuff, but it's just like, if I had to preserve paintings from a burning fire, this is one of them. Yeah, I mean... I would I would save it. There might be others I would go to faster, but I would really try and grab it if it was, you know, about to be burned. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, not, not that we have to pick, but I think I probably like Johnny Guitar, I think, better than this. Um, partly the color of that movie, you know. It's partly just that, like, Westerns are... There's a lot of brown in these, you know. These mm. are just, like, really gut, subjective things where... You know, there are just different kinds of images that I just know I just speak Feel to my, my my bones more. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if someone says, hey, I want to watch a Western, I'm going to be like, go watch Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. Put it that yeah. way. Um, yeah, I just, man, what a story this told. And how invaluable is it as an influence to other filmmakers? I just, you know, th- this is one of the most likely titles that I'm not done with yet, I think that we've screened on rescreening where we have to talk about it now. Cause that's how we scheduled it, but I'm not mm. done with it. It's not done with me as a piece. Oh yeah. I, 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 I hope I only come up on it for sure. Um, I don't, I, I mean, we have to, what is, what is your favorite scene before we end the sucker? Well, I do, I do love the one we were just talking about the kind of mid film set piece where Cheyenne's on top of the, uh, train that feels like one of the more thrilling moments of the movie. Um, hard not to go with that one. Um, but I also kind of love the arrival of Claudia Cardinale's character and just that simple carriage ride to the McBain farm mm. where it just feels like that is so place setting. Um, in the context of, of the, the, the geography, the landscapes, you know, those are just some of my favorite shots of the movie. Um, what about you? Yeah, I don't know why I asked you because I don't want to answer. But, um, so I guess we'll go problematic. Um, oh, I love it. I think the most interesting scene to me that I just can't, I don't know what to do with, is the the haystack um, sexual encounter Cardinale has um, outside mm. on top of the, the hay. Um, what the camera's doing there with the lighting, how she's playing that. Um, their outfits, the reaction shots. Um, there's just something human and drawing about whatever that is. And I, I, I mean, I feel like I've dealt with a lot of the scenes. I think that's one of the scenes that I don't know what to do with. And um, regardless of its content, it looks gorgeous and that only accentuates the ideas that he has going on in it. More to chew on. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't. 